Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be back here in Charlotte. It's good to be back here in Charlotte. <clears throat> it's good to be home, I think. As I walked in the door, Mr. Punch got in the first punch. He said, what are strangers doing here? <laughs> but it is good to be back. I was actually sitting in an airport yesterday about noontime in Brussels, watching them load the plane and thinking, I'm actually going home today. <laughs> Actually going home after about 32 days on the road, 31,000 miles around the world, about 65 hours on airplanes, another 20 to 30 hours on cars, different places. I really do appreciate your prayers. Uh, they were very helpful. Uh, made about 10 connections in different countries, and they all worked out very well, very smoothly. Uh, <clears throat> I really do appreciate the prayers. So I left here with a cold, and I kind of fought with that thing through uh, Australia, and I fought with that thing through uh, uh, the Philippines, and it finally disappeared somewhere in Africa. So <laughs> <clears throat> the delay coming back uh, in Belgium was actually kind of a blessing. I had a chance to sleep in several mornings. It was an exercise room in a hotel, so... I was able to kind of rebuild. Uh, uh, I actually feel pretty good today, unless I say something bad and then we can blame it on jet lag. <laughs> I also appreciated Mr. Pardee's emails. Uh, I would get them in various places around the world with his basic message, are you enjoying your vacation? <laughs> <laughs> Which added a bit of humor to the whole thing. <clears throat> actually, before I left on a trip, I'd sent uh, Mr. Bruce Tyler a note, an email, to ask his advice on putting a, an agenda together. And I sent him what I was planning to do. And he sent me back an email with two pictures on it. One picture was a bed, and the other picture was a coffin. And he said, that looking over your agenda, you're going to need one or the other before the end of this trip. <laughs> I'm going to send him an email that I slept in my bed last night. The coffin can wait. <laughs> In the sermon today, I would like to share some of the experiences and perspectives and lessons that uh, at least have come across my mind during the recent trip. Some of these things are exciting. Some of them are very sobering. Uh, all of them, I think, were instructive to me, and I hope that they can be to you. I've tried to encapsulate perhaps one of the biggest lessons that I have learned on this trip in the title of the sermon, which I will reveal in just a moment. <clears throat> You know, most people in the world today are caught up in daily routines, as probably you and probably me and many, many other people. You know, we get up in the morning, brush our teeth, take a shower, eat breakfast, go to work, try to earn enough money to pay our bills, then we come home and eat dinner, and then go to bed and get up the next morning, and this is the routine that many, many people uh, <clears throat> fall into, not just for a period of time, but basically for their lives. And some people try and break out of that routine by living for the weekends, where they can party hardy, where they can shop till they drop, where they can watch TV, work in the yard, but that too can become a routine, where you just do these things over and over and over. <clears throat> Fortunately, God has given us, as his people, the Sabbath and the holy days. 
for the very purpose of breaking out of a routine where he commands us to take time to step back from our routine and focus on a bigger picture. Why we're here, where we're going, what God is doing. God gives us the Sabbath for that purpose and for that reason. It's amazing. Some people view the Sabbath as a burden, something, well, we have to do. And yet God gives us the Sabbath as a blessing where we can stop and back off from this routine and really focus on why we're here and where we're going and what God is doing. We have a chance to focus on God's plan and God's purpose for human beings, not just for us, but for the entire world. Because God's plan is inclusive. It's for all mankind. What I'd like to do today in the sermon is really step back from a routine and look at a big picture. I've entitled the sermon, The Importance of Vision. The Importance of Having a Vision understanding a plan and understanding a purpose and staying focused on that because this is one of the big lessons of the Bible, that God has a plan and he's got a purpose. You know, when you travel around the world, this is the first time I've actually done an around-the-world trip, 31,000 miles. It wasn't straight around. It was kind of zigzagging around. But you touch bases on four or five continents and five or six cultures You get quite a perspective, and I'd like to share that with you today. Maybe just to ask a few questions, too, of yourself. Do you understand what God is doing? Do you understand what God is doing on earth today? The plan and the purpose that he is working out, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. You know, we talk about these things all the time in church, but I think sometimes we can understand these things intellectually. Well, I know God has a plan. And I know he's got a church, and I've been called into the church. But more than just understanding it intellectually, have these things become part of your heart? In other words, have you internalized these things to the point where you are deeply committed to what you believe? You know what you believe, and you know why you believe it. You know where you're going. You know the purpose in life. You understand the mission that God has given to his church. And you understand why you've been called to be part of it. Are these things real to you? Hopefully we can talk about that today as we go through the sermon. If we can take some time to just step back from our routine. I know you may have plans tonight. Maybe it's for dinner or entertaining or whatever. But put that on the shelf for just a little bit. And let's focus on a bigger picture of what God is doing on this earth, what he has done and what he's going to do. Because if we focus on a big picture, life is not going to be boring. Life is not going to be routine when you understand the big picture and you have a sense of vision. Notice in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. Proverbs 29 and verse 18. The Bible talks about the importance of vision. It says, where there is no revelation, that's the New King James Version, but in the Old King James it says, where there is no vision, where there are no revealed guidelines, where there are no revealed plan about the future, 
Where there is no revelation, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. They do whatever they feel like they want to do. Well, there's no God. I can do whatever I want to do. There's no plan, no purpose. I can just do whatever I want to do. And this is what is happening day in and day out around the world today. Where there is no plan, no vision, no revelation, people cast off restraint. Why do they do that? Because they're looking for happiness. They want to do things that will make them happy. But notice what God says makes you happy is the path to happiness. But happy is he who keeps the law. Happy is he who keeps the law, who understands the Sabbath, who takes time to step back from the routine. Not living a boring life, but has a plan, has a purpose, and understands that purpose. Happy is he or she who keeps the laws of God. That doesn't commit adultery, doesn't commit to fornication, doesn't play around with drugs, doesn't do these things. Because all those things have a kickback. All those things have consequences. I remember when I was working in a master public health degree, it was doing a paper on preventing uh, alcohol and drug abuse. I was working with a young lady. She was actually my advisor. She'd gotten her degree before I got mine. So we were discussing various approaches. And I said, you know what I've noticed going through the literature and also noticed in working with people is that young people especially who have a sense of purpose, who have a focus in their life, they don't get involved with these things. And I said, you know, Part of that has to do with religious beliefs. And she said, well, we can't deal with that because we're a state university. We can't get into religion. I said, you know, dealing with that issue in state college is like trying to deal with the issue with one hand tied behind your back because you're not dealing with the big picture. You're not dealing with the big picture. You're dealing with parts of it. Where there is no vision, no revelation, people cast off restraint, but happy is he that keeps the law. One other scripture I'd like to look at to kind of set the stage for the sermon today is in Proverbs chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, in Psalms 121. Psalm 121, first several verses. <clears throat> How do you get the big picture? How do you develop a sense of vision? Notice what David had to say here in Psalm 121. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And basically ask this question, from whence comes my strength? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, when you can get out away from cities, look up into the sky, see the stars, watch the sun come up in the morning by a lake or by a stream, and you're not bothered by the hum of the city and the rumble of cars and so on. Had a chance to do that several times on a trip. Things get clear. You can focus on bigger things. You can focus on a bigger picture. But David said, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my strength. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. That is, if you're trying to obey him. He who keeps you will not slumber. God watches. Behold, he keeps Israel. He who keeps Israel will not slumber. But the point I want to make here is that if we can lift up our eyes and see the big picture, Take some time on the Sabbath to focus on the big picture. You can develop a sense of vision. What I'd like to do in the sermon is really kind of do two things. One, I'd like to kind of give you a short summary of the trip, basically to share some of the excitement 
some of the <laughs> trials and tribulations uh, of 32 days on the road. I also maybe give you some ideas for some places to go for the feast, some things to see on your way, and to share a little bit about uh, the people that we have in various countries around the world. And in the second part of the sermon, I want to share some perspectives with you. Share some perspectives with you that will hopefully flesh out this big picture. Purpose of the trip, uh, uh, despite what the emails I got said, was not a vacation. <laughs> it was really to visit congregations in uh, four or five different countries, to meet some of the leaders in the different congregations, deacons, elders, their wives, other leading people. We conducted uh, three regional conferences, one in, in uh, Australia, one in uh, Manila, and one in South Africa. We were able to ordain Mr. Uh, Simon Muthama as an elder. Uh, he will be serving in East Africa, basically Kenya, uh, Uganda, and Tanzania. He came down to uh, South Africa because we felt it was not wise to go into Nairobi. Uh, during the time of this trip, things were very difficult there. Uh, uh, things seem to be settling down, but it's, it's still very challenging. We conducted these uh, three regional conferences. We normally had a Sabbath service, and then we had the regional conference either the two days before the Sabbath or the two days after the Sabbath. We also had board meetings uh, in most of these areas. Uh, we were able to tour the offices in Manila. We actually were able to find a new office. The uh, office was in a building that was not being maintained very well. Uh, the ceiling was leaking, and they patched it up, but it was still kind of coming through. And uh, they had located uh, two other places we looked at, and the one place that we were able, I believe, to secure. Did we not do that, Mr. Pardian? Uh, same price as the other one, but it's a much nicer building. It's upstairs, windows. You can look out over the city. Very easy to get to, but we did this all uh, on a very short time schedule. Um, but we did the regional conferences, visited the offices, had board meetings, uh, and then I tried to leave a day before the meetings or after the meetings to kind of unwind, to do some other things, see what was there to see. Uh, and it was very nice then the last... Uh, week before coming home. There were several days I could do that and kind of catch up on things. We left here, or I left here uh, in, I forgot to bring my calendar with me, but um, I believe it was in January, and flew about five hours to the West Coast, uh, changed planes in L.A., then flew about 15 hours down to uh, uh, Melbourne and then to Adelaide. It's a long flight. Uh, we got in on a Thursday afternoon, I believe it was. One of the uh, films that I watched on the plane going down there mentioned that Australia has one of the highest standards of living in the world. You don't see many poor people in Australia because of the governmental programs and so on. It's a very beautiful country. Uh, we did a tour of the office. Mr. Tyler and uh, uh, Michael Gill had located a, a, an older house in a little town called, actually town, a little village called Clarendon. It's out in the hills on the edge of Adelaide in the southern part of Australia. Most of the buildings were built in the 1800s, about 1840, 1850. They're built out of stone. And there's one street in the town. It's a beautiful little place. Um, the 
uh, bought this older stone ho- house and have kind of reconditioned it. I fixed up the uh, uh, the yard and the garden and so on. And the people in the village, everybody notices because it's a little village, but they stop by and say, you've done a wonderful job with this property. They also have building codes there where they're not letting other things being built. But it's a, it's a very interesting place. It's, it's a very pleasant place to work. Uh, they are doing quite a bit of work there. Uh, they have hired two young men to work part-time in the office, but also to be full-time students in Living University. So they work part-time, study part-time, and the hope is that they will be useful to the work uh, once they finish their program. But it was very exciting to be there and see that. We had a Sabbath service on the Sabbath with about uh, somewhere between 80 and 100 people. Sunday, Monday, Mr. Tyler and I conducted a regional conference for about 20 deacons and elders and their wives and uh, some other leading people. We actually conducted the meetings in an inn that had a restaurant, and uh, actually uh, uh, they make wine. There's a bunch of grapevines around there. The guy that owns the inn also uh, is a vintner, and he makes wine. They also have some apartments there, and uh, we were discussing the potential that is there for possibly an Austro-Asian campus of Living University at some point in time. But we were just blue-skying some things, uh, developing some ideas for programs that might be useful, uh, maybe two-week programs that could be taught in the summertime there on the camp or there in uh, uh, Clarendon. I had heard that Dr. Germana may want to get down to uh, Australia for the feast. So this might be something he could look at, but it looked very exciting. They've got a number of very capable people there in both Australia and New Zealand. Mr. and Mrs. Penman had come over from uh, New Zealand for the regional conference, and Mr. Penman mentioned if there's any retired ministers that would like to get down and help out in uh, New Zealand, that they could certainly welcome some help down there. They also mentioned that they wouldn't mind having some guests come down that way for the feast. So uh, a very beautiful part of the country. <clears throat> Sunday, Monday, we did those, and then on Tuesday, uh, Mr. Uh, Daryl Tanner, one of the ministers there in Australia, who is also responsible for the Philippines, he and I flew up to Manila. It was about a 10-hour flight, about 4,600 miles, almost due north. We got into Manila Tuesday evening. They picked us up at the airport, and we struggled to get across Manila uh, because we got in about 7 o'clock. It was a rush hour traffic, and traffic just doesn't move. It moves five feet and stops, and then moves five more feet and stops. Uh, you don't want to breathe the air. Uh, somebody mentioned there are 18 million people living around the Manila area. Rod, does that sound right? Then I was checking some statistics, and it looks like it's about right. Uh, but it's, it's 18 million people, I wouldn't say living there. They're existing there. You know, in South Africa, they had uh, these... Um, slum settlements that are basically one story. In Manila, they're four stories high, where there's no plumbing, no electricity, people sleeping on the sidewalks. Uh, They stake out their little uh, section of the sidewalk where they wash their clothes and they sleep on the sidewalks. And uh, It's it's a very sobering way to live, but this is what we saw coming back uh, through Manila that evening. On Wednesday, we did a, little bit of, uh, did a little tour through Manila. There's an old Spanish fort downtown, which was the original settlement there. When you look at the fort from the outside, if you've been to St. Augustine, 
Uh, the old fortress down there with the little turrets on the corners. These things were built about the same time in the 1500s. The Spanish actually controlled the Philippines for about 350 years, which is one of the reasons why about 80% of the population is Catholic. Uh, they've left their mark. A lot of big cathedrals, but a lot of poverty uh, in a country like that. Uh, Thursday and Friday, we had a regional conference for about 10 of the elders. Uh, we hoped to have more, but we were not able to get finance down to uh, uh, Manila soon enough, so uh, not everybody could come. But hopefully next time we may do the conference. Uh, if we do another regional conference, we'll probably do it down in Mindanao, the bigger island of the south where many more of the members are. Sabbath, we had about 100 people, maybe a little bit more. We had a lot of young people in the congregation there in Manila, sharp young people. Uh, had some very beautiful special music. The choir sang through numbers, multi-parts. It was, it was very good. It was very good. Sunday, we did a, a trip with a number of the ministers and their wives out to the island of Corregidor. Corregidor is a, a, a tadpole-shaped island that sits at the mouth of Manila Bay. And the boats coming in and out have got to go by this. The Americans had fortified it during World War II. The Japanese took it. Um, the Americans then retook it. Uh, we did a tour that lasted most of Sunday, and it was just extremely sobering because it's a beautiful island. You look across and you see this mountainous peninsula of Bataan. Uh, you think you're in the South Seas, which you are to a degree, but the slaughter and the things that occurred around there. The guide said there were more shells fell on Corregidor than fell on any circumscribed area during World War II. They just, uh, apparently all the trees were totally destroyed on the island. Um, <clears throat> we saw the, what they called the mile-long barracks where the Americans stayed, saw MacArthur's headquarters, and they're nothing but cement shells because they were bombed and they've not done anything to the island since then. You stand by some of the, uh, the guns that were actually put there before World War I that were used in World War II, and so the shell marks are still on the guns, and some were you know, stuck off in different places where shells explode and just blew these big guns uh, uh, in different places. But it was, it was just a very sobering experience to, to be there, to see the beauty that's there naturally, and then to realize the slaughter that has taken place on that island. Now, there was actually a gun emplacement called the Crockett Battery that was there. <laughs> these were big disappearing guns that would go down and come up and they would basically shoot out to sea. But as you stand there towards the back of the island and look at the tail of the island, uh, the tail wrapped around what used to be a volcano and apparently blew its top and then has got little islands spotted around where the tail is. It's just absolutely beautiful to be there and to see the scenery. But then you see the history uh, is just extremely sobering. On Monday, we uh, visited a couple of the new offices uh, we're able to make some emails and phone calls and uh, secured the funding for that. And then uh, I took off uh, that afternoon and flew about two hours to Hong Kong. It was about 700 miles from Manila over to Hong Kong. Had about a five-hour layover. Didn't have quite enough time because I got there in the evening. I wasn't interested in going out at night to go exploring in Hong Kong. So I watched the TV uh, information type of uh, videos. And it looked like Hong Kong is the Disneyland of, of the Orient in a way. There's just a lot of bells and whistles and restaurants and entertainment and smart shops and so on. 
And it made it very inviting. But I walked over to the bookstore, and they had a, quite a large English language section. And I saw this one book entitled, and it's a rough title, something like, Will the Water Sink the Boat? And what it was talking about there, you know, China has a population of, what, over a billion people. But they estimate there's something like 900 million peasants in China that are not sharing in the economic boom. And this may be an Achilles heel for China. There's also some interesting books on economics that said for years, actually for decades, probably better part of a century, that businessmen have eyed the Chinese market because it's so big. But they said historically people have gotten their fingers burned because things have not worked out in the Chinese market. Things change. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the years ahead. Had about a five-hour layover there and then uh, headed off to uh, South Africa. The flight was about 13 hours and about, uh, what was it, uh, 13 hours and about 6,600 miles over the Indian Ocean. So I did a couple of these night flights to cover the long distance. Tried to get an aisle seat where I could spread out. In most cases, it, it worked. <clears throat> Got into... Uh, Johannesburg then, um, Tuesday morning, was met by Thea and Patrick Wallace, a young couple that live in Pretoria. Pretoria is where the capital of uh, South Africa is, about 20, 30 miles north of Johannesburg. We drove up to look at what is called the Fortrecker Monument. It's basically the Afrikaans pioneers that uh, migrated into the interior. They were Dutch-speaking, kind of a mixture of French, Dutch, and German peoples that... Uh, uh, did not get along with the English, so they were, as the English came into Cape Town and those places, these people moved inland. They moved inland in their covered wagons, the ladies with their long skirts and bonnets, and the men with their uh, uh, hats and muskets, and they could have passed for American pioneers. But uh, these migrations took place at about the same time, the middle part of the 1800s. So we took a number of pictures and did some filming around the monument there in Pretoria. Also took some footage of the uh, Capitol buildings, the Union buildings as they're called. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, Mr. King and his wife and also Simon Mathama flew down and we met them in, in Johannesburg. Uh, Mr. Botha, who manages our office there, came in and he'd rented a van and we drove about, uh, I forget the exact mileage, probably a couple hundred kilometers. Uh, probably 150 miles or so, because we were in the van at least two or three hours. We drove out to Harry Smith, which is about halfway between Johannesburg and Durban, which is uh, to the east. Uh, Harry Smith is up about 6,000 feet altitude-wise. Beautiful little town. Beautiful little town. You look out the front window of the uh, Bathas home, which is where we have the office, and you see this... Uh, a rocky uh, plateau that looks like something up south of Denver. And I said, what are those black spots up there along the hill? He said, those are wild animals. He said, it's a nature reserve up there. So these are wildebeest or something up there just munching away and having a good time. <laughs> striking scenery, striking scenery. In a small town, you could actually tell where the edge of town was as opposed to things going on and on and on. Uh, the Bothas have done a wonderful job down there organizing the office, um, I've got a bunch of pictures. Maybe we can do a Bible study or something uh, to share some of these things with you. But they've done a wonderful job organizing things. Uh, they organized the trip uh, or the visit down there down to the last detail. 
We did a board meeting there and also then uh, toured the office and then drove out to what they call the Drakensberg or Drakensberg, Drakensberg, I think it's a mountain range that is between Johannesburg and um, Durban where these pioneers came up over these mountains or went down over these mountains. I couldn't figure out which. Uh, But again, a strikingly beautiful area with a lot of history. Next morning we got up, uh, I think we had our board meeting there too, and then we drove to a place called Blood River, which is where there was a big battle between the Zulus and these Boers uh, or the Afrikaans people moving into that area. And it was a very interesting place because it was a big circle of wagons. They made these wagons out of copper or steel or something. And about 64 wagons. So you've put 64 wagons in a big circle. They had about 450 people that were moving into this area. And the Zulus did not want them to come into that area. And there were about, they estimate, between 10,000 and 12,000 Zulus that showed up to basically say, you're not welcome. And they fought a battle. The, before the battle, the Afrikaans people had made a, basically a covenant with God. They said, God, if you protect us, if you deliver us, we will declare, I think it's December 16th or one day in December, a, a very special day forever. Something happened because the Zulus lost. They fled, really, the battle scene. 10 to 12,000 Zulus surrounded this, this wagon circle that was defended by 450 Afrikaans people. And what's interesting is the Zulus later wiped out smaller, larger detachments of professional British soldiers. Smaller detachments of Zulus wiped out bigger detachments of soldiers than these people were. And yet something happened there. One of our uh, members years ago apparently owned that property where the, uh, the Blood River battlefield was. And according to some of the stories of the Zulu people there, they said that they put the younger Zulus in the front and made them charge in first. And these younger Zulus saw something above the wagons. It was a big white horse or maybe white horses or something, but they saw something. They turned around and ran. And the older ones killed the young guys because they weren't supposed to flee. They were, they were running away from something. But something happened there. And the Afrikaans people believed that God intervened and that God gave them that country. I mean, that's the stories. But they built this uh, reconstruction of the, uh, the wagon circle there. There's a lot of interesting things about the battle. We went through the uh, museum that was there. But something happened there, and they, they certainly believe that. But they don't, not everybody keeps the, the, the covenant that they made on December 16th or whatever. It's interesting. They made a covenant to keep this particular day in December, but they don't keep the Sabbath and they don't keep the holy days. And it's interesting. I was talking with an older gentleman one of my previous trips to South Africa who was an Afrikaans person, not in a church. And I said, what are your people thinking today? What are they, what's on their mind? He said, our people, and they're basically Dutch Reformed people as their heritage. He said, our people are beginning to ask, why is God taking our country away from us? Because basically they've turned their back on God and things are disappearing. Things are going to change. 
It was quite a sobering visit because in talking with people in South Africa, they realized things are going to change. You know, there are four, about 40 million black South Africans and about three and a half to four million white South Africans. And many of the white South Africans are planning to leave because they can't get jobs anymore. Uh, things are changing down there. Uh, the black South African government has been very soft on Robert Mugabe and what he's done in Zimbabwe, where he's encouraged people to move on to the farms of the farmers and take their land and so on. And the, the farming operation in Zimbabwe used to supply food for all of South Africa, the southern part of Africa. And those farms are, are there's nothing working on those farms anymore. I saw something yesterday in the paper that uh, the inflation rate in Zimbabwe is something like 100,000%. I saw something on the news where a guy was going to buy a hamburger and he walked in with this bundle of, <laughs> of bills, dropped it on the desk, and he wanted to buy the hamburger right now because a couple of hours later it would cost a lot more money. And this is what has happened in Zimbabwe. And people feel that things may happen in a, a similar direction in South Africa. However, there are some interesting South African prophecies, not by us and not in the Bible, uh, but by a prophet uh, who lived back in the 1800s, who basically said the Germans will come into South Africa, and they will basically give South Africa back to the Afrikaans people, which is going to be interesting to see. Mercedes and also BMW have assembly plants in South Africa. South Africa supplies about 50% of the world's gold, about 80% of the world's platinum, and a lot of the diamonds. Uh, I do not think the Germans are going to let South Africa go to pot. Something will happen. Something will happen. Someone's going to intervene. There's too many valuable things down there. But we traveled up to Blood River, then drove back to... Um, uh, Johannesburg, we had about 65 people on the Sabbath. We were able to ordain Mr. Simon Mathama on the Sabbath. And Sunday and Monday, we had a regional conference for about 25 uh, deacons, elders, their wives, and some other leading people. Uh, Mr. King and I conducted the regional conference. It went very well. It was exciting to see. We got some very capable young people there, very capable older people there in leadership positions, uh, the church in South Africa is really doing very well. Starting to get new visits down there. We talked with a young man and a young man and his wife. Uh, he was a career officer in the South African Army. Very sharp fellow. Uh, he's all excited about the truth of God, as are a number of other people there. We are going on, I think, some sort of a television network down there. Wayne, do you remember what that is? Uh, one of the things that uh, Dr. Craddock has come up with, that I think it's going to cover all of South Africa and even up into East Africa. So it should be very exciting to see what happens. On Tuesday, let's see, Monday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday, we did the conference. Monday afternoon after the conference, uh, I took a day off and drove up to Kruger National Park or towards Kruger National Park with one of our younger board members there as a businessman. His father-in-law was a big game hunter. Uh, in Kruger. Kruger National Park is as big as the state of Israel. Uh, huge place. As the the uh, geography is something like Arizona. Uh, you've got a lot of scrub, uh, uh, semi-desert areas. But uh, as you're driving through 
Kruger National Park, you know, they've got elephants, they've got giraffes, they've got lions, they've got leopards, rhinoceroses, uh, you name it, is there. And just driving into the park, you see these things. Uh, we stayed at a lodge in the park. We did a game drive that evening where you go out in a Jeep-like vehicle. It holds about eight or six or eight people. It's got a little roof on it, but it's all open, so you're up kind of high. And uh, we stayed out till dark, and then we got up the next morning about 5 o'clock and went out for another drive. And it was really interesting because we were, like, from here to uh, the front row with an elephant. He's got his ears out and his trunk out, and he's coming right at you. And we asked our driver, who was a licensed ranger, he said, was, was there any danger back there? He says, as long as the elephant has his ears out and his trunk out, you're okay. He says, he puts his ears back and tucks his uh, trunk under. He said, watch out, because that's the time he's coming after you. <laughs> and we saw several prides of lions. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was exciting to see that. And I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 11, where it talks about, let's look at that quick. We had a chance to, to, to savor God's creation and God's creativity. And I think it was a foretaste of what it's going to be like in the coming kingdom of God. Verse 6 of Isaiah 11 says, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child will lead them. In other words, there's going to be a time of peace we're going to be able to enjoy the creatures that God has created. On the drive we did the morning we left, um, we were out there before the sun came up. We saw a couple of giraffes, actually three or four of them over here about where Bill Bomer is. And they were just there nibbling on the tops of the trees. And one comes over and looks right at us <laughs> and goes and poses in the middle of the road. So we were taking pictures like crazy. But it was just so beautiful. It was so peaceful watching these big creatures walk around. It was a foretaste, I think, of the coming kingdom of God. We drove back then that day, I think it was Wednesday, to Pretoria, took a couple more shots of the, um, the Fortrecker Monument. The sun was in a better position. And then caught a flight that evening. To, it was an overnight flight again up to uh, Frankfurt, about 5,600 miles. Uh, got into Frankfurt about 5.30 in the morning, changed planes uh, down to uh, to Belgium. And was wet met there by Mr. Reese Ellis, who has been assisting Mr. Carrion with the churches uh, there in Belgium. He met me in the morning, and we had planned ahead to drive down to Germany to visit uh, what is called an Ordensburg. It was a, a training facility set up by the Nazis to basically train elite young men to fill positions in the uh, the German Reich during World War II and, and after. I'd read about these things years ago. Uh, this particular one was called Vogelsang. I think it means birdsong. But it sits up on a hill overlooking a lake, a very spectacular setting. And they've got a dining hall there. They've got dormitories. They had an athletic field down below. And they were building a big, uh, supposed to be a library. I think that was never completed. But it's an impressive place because they've got uh, carvings and statues of uh, knights on horses and torchbearers and you know, big Nazi eagles and things like that. But it was just interesting to be there. And uh, on our way down to visit that place, um, Mr. Ellis got a call from his father-in-law that he had fallen and 
had been put in the hospital, and then I think he died later that evening whenever we got back. So I never did get to see Mr. Carrion. I understand he was looking forward to the visit. He had gone through some of his World War II papers. He was actually arrested for spying on the Nazis, put in jail, and was able to get out of jail later on. I called Dr. Meredith, I think, then on Friday, and we talked about the possibility of staying over for the funeral, which we decided uh, to do. That Sabbath, I spoke to uh, their church group. They had about 120 people, I think, for services. And it was rather a sobering Sabbath because Mr. Carrion had worked with those people for around 40 years, something like that. Uh, and when there was a death of a patriarch in that sense... Uh, Sunday, I think I worked around the hotel uh, on some routine type of things, uh, living university lectures and uh, some stuff for editorial. Monday, I went up to Aachen, Germany, which is where Charlemagne had a palace. Uh, he's buried up there, and they also have uh, supposedly some uh, uh, relics of uh, the Virgin Mary up there in this big cathedral. But a number of important meetings in Europe have taken place there because it was Charlemagne's palace. It was his headquarters, so to speak. A number of important European agreements have been signed up there. And you walk through the city hall, and they got pictures of President Clinton and Winston Churchill and all these people that have had meetings there in these old buildings. The funeral was on Wednesday. There was about 150 people came to the funeral uh, from basically uh, churches of God uh, in Europe over there. We had a number of our members came up from Geneva, uh, came down from Normandy, uh, uh, came down from Holland. So it was interesting just to see a number of our members there too. I think on the next day, on Thursday, or one of the days that I drove up to Waterloo, which is only about 10 miles, 15 miles north of uh, Charleroi, where, we, uh, where the uh, Carrions lived, Again, to be in Waterloo, uh, it was the site of the Battle of Waterloo where Wellington uh, and the British and the Dutch and the Prussians uh, confronted Napoleon. 300,000 men fought there in Waterloo. Over 33,000 were wounded and over 10,000 died, all because of one man's ambition, Napoleon, that wanted to basically do what he wanted to do. And, of course, the, the British and the French, and the, or the British and the, the uh, Prussians, the Dutch, uh, probably the Austrians, didn't want him to do it. So they fought this huge battle. Beautiful area. You can climb up on a monument and see the whole battlefield. It's just rolling farmland. Uh, I guess a good place for a battle. But they had a big circular uh, panorama where a big painting, I think it was about 40 feet high, that showed the whole battle, and you could stand in the middle of this thing, and you could see what was happening the whole way around. Uh, they also had a film that showed the movements of the troops. What was interesting, you walked into the souvenir shop, and there were all kinds of statues and, uh, and uh, things of Napoleon. He lost. <laughs> there were no statues of Wellington. He won. <laughs> but, you know, when you put this into a prophetic setting, it was basically Ephraim and Reuben going at it. And the prophecies say Ephraim was going to basically get the birthright. And that's essentially what happened. And what's interesting is the Bible gives us a perspective on these things. It gives us an understanding of a plan and a purpose that God is working out on this earth. On Friday morning, went to the airport, 
had a number of talks with Mr. Ellis and some others over there. But on Friday morning, yesterday morning, about noontime, I was watching the plane being loaded and thought, I'm going home. <laughs> I'm going home. It's all over. So it was a privilege to get back here to Charlotte. Got in last night about 8 o'clock. Um, it was quite a 32-day vacation. <laughs> what I'd like to do in the second half of the sermon today is to talk about some of the lessons that we can learn, share some perspectives with you. Because when you make a trip like this, it does leave you with impressions. It does provide perspectives, and I hope that in merely describing the trip to you, I uh, don't want us to talk so much about what I have done. Because a lot of other people were involved. Mrs. Gwynn worked very hard making flight arrangements and then changing flight arrangements and remaking those flight arrangements. Uh, Mr. Tyler, Mr. Osilios in the Philippines, Mr. Botha and others in South Africa were also very much involved making arrangements for the meetings. But you know, the truly exciting thing was to see what God has done over the years, what he is doing around the world, and what he's going to do in the future. I've got seven perspectives that I want to share with you here. First perspective is that God has a plan and a purpose. God has a plan and he has a purpose. He has made promises to the people of Israel. And he has kept those promises. And it's just sobering to see, and it's exciting to see as you travel around, to see how these things have worked out over time. Let's notice for just a minute in Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. I've got some very strong feelings about this, and I hope that you do too, or can because about 10 years ago, people were being told there is no plan. There is no purpose. Jesus is the purpose. Well, that is only partly right. It's mostly wrong. There is a plan. There is a purpose. Jesus Christ is part of that. But there are a number of other dimensions to that plan and purpose. Notice in verse 9, it's a challenge that Isaiah issues. It says, remember the former things of old. Think about history. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end, declaring the future, declaring the outcome from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. The word here in the Hebrew for counsel means plan. It means purpose. My plan will stand. My purpose will stand. I will do my pleasure. Now, there is a God in heaven that intervenes periodically in history. He doesn't guide everything, but he does guide outcomes. He guided the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo. Now, the French and the British and the Dutch met together, and it was pretty much a stalemate until the Prussians came in. They were late. They got there about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. But they came in from the side, and they basically rolled up the French line. The French left all of their cannons, over 200, and fled, got out of there. 
at the last minute, the tables turned. But it turned in favor of Ephraim. And Napoleon was never able to do what he wanted to do. God has a plan. He has a purpose. Why did 450 Afrikaans people prevail over 10,000 Zulus? Well, they had three cannons. But, you know, 10 to 12,000 people. Something happened at the Battle of Blood River. Something happened numerous times down through history at Dunkirk and other places where God has worked out his plan. He's worked out his purpose. And for someone to say there is no plan, there is no purpose, is totally ridiculous. It's wrong. It misleads people. God has a plan. He has a purpose. You can look up some of these other scriptures in Ezekiel, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a reason. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a reason. You can read the reason there in those verses. To show the nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, that there was a God in heaven that made things happen. The Egyptians got their witness at that time. God is going to intervene in history again in the future. The people are going to be shocked when the United States goes down the tubes. And they're going to say, why is this happening? You can read about it again in Ezekiel and Isaiah. Because God is going to show the world that when you forget God, you turn your back on God, there will be consequences for that. The world is going to learn lessons from what's going to happen to our people in the years just ahead. God has a plan. He has a purpose. Revelation 17, verse 17. God is going to use the beast and ten kings that give their power to the beast to correct the harlot church that is talked about in the book of Revelation. He says, they will do my purpose. They will accomplish my purpose. See, God does have a plan and a purpose. Another interesting scripture in 1 Kings chapter 12. God took the kingdom away from Saul, the kingdom of Israel away from Saul. He told Jeroboam, I'm going to give it to you. And if you obey me, I'm going to work with your, your, your descendants. Rehoboam Saul's son didn't like that, or Solomon's son didn't like that. He was going to go up and beat up on the Israelites. God says, don't go, because the split of the nation is from me. I am working out my plan. I'm working out my purpose. And some people have asked today, why is the church split up in so many parts? I think God is working out a plan. He's working out a purpose that we will see and understand in the years ahead. God has a plan. He has a purpose. I was talking with another minister from another organization. We're talking about the nations of Africa. And he made the same observation I did. God gave South Africa, basically, to the Israelite peoples. And it's probably the choice place in Africa. Notice in Genesis chapter 48 and 49, 
See, God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's called the Israelite peoples to use them as a light and an example, but they didn't, they didn't function very well. But they were blessed because of the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as you travel around the world, these things just hit you in the face. You know, in Genesis 12, maybe just to briefly mention that Abraham was promised to become a great nation. His descendants would become a great nation. And that they would be a blessing. They were intended to be a blessing to the world. To be a blessing to the world. And then you read through the book of Genesis how they were promised to possess the gates of their enemies. You get to Genesis 48. It talks about the descendants of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. One was to become a great nation. The other one was to become a multitude of nations, a company of nations, a commonwealth of nations. There's nobody in the face of the earth that fulfills these scriptures better than the United States and Great Britain when they were at the height of their power. But God also promised and told them, if you turn your back on me, you forget me. I'm going to take all these blessings away. But let's just notice very quickly the blessings of Joseph to Ephraim Manasseh. This would be in the United States and Britain and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa. Notice the blessings here. They're specific. Joseph is a fruitful bough, Ephraim and Manasseh. A fruitful bough by a well and his branches run over the wall. It's talking about a colonizing people. Their populations would grow and they would spread around the world. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, hated him, but his bow remained in strength. You know, Napoleon was out to defeat Wellington at Waterloo. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Worked out totally different. Down in verse 25, By the God of your Father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb, your populations are going to grow. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. And you drive around South Africa. We drove around probably 2,000 kilometers down there. Stunningly beautiful country. Productive agriculturally. They've had a lot of rain. The corn was about six to seven feet high and lots of it. Other places we drove through vineyards that were full of grapes. Other places reminded me of Fallbrook, California, citrus trees and uh, uh, palm trees and other things like that, cattle. And then under the ground, they've got coal, they've got oil, they've got platinum, they've got gold, they've got diamonds. Uh, I remember asking a person years ago, I said, where was the most stunning place you've ever traveled to? He said, Cape Town, South Africa, with Table Mountain up there. It's a stunning place. But God gave it to the Israelites. Now, they have misused various things, haven't used it wisely, uh, have not treated people properly. They're going to lose it. Things are going to change. But God fulfilled these promises. Turn quickly to, um, we'll notice here while we're here, verse 26. It says, the crown of the head of him, talking about Joseph, there shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. You know, most of the other brothers are up in northwestern Europe. But South Africa is a long way, 6,000 miles from northwestern Europe. Australia and New Zealand, way down under. But again, beautiful countries down there. 
And the people in Indonesia and Malaysia are looking at that land down there. They made comments. Mr. Gill was commenting. He said, you know, he was flying with a guy from either Indonesia or Malaysia. His comment to Mr. Gill when he found out he was from Australia, he said, uh, we're going to have to come down here and show you how to use that land. We're going to have to come down and show you how to use You've got too much land down there. We've got more people up here. We're, we're going to have to come down and show you some things. I think the Australian Defense Force you can put on a football field. They've got five submarines, I think. They're depending on the United States, but we're going to be too far away to help. You know, things are going to change in the years just ahead. Turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33 quickly. This is a companion chapter to Genesis 49. But notice again the promises to Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh. We're talking about America, Britain, Canada, and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Verse 13, Blessed of the Lord is his hand, that is the hand of Joseph, with the precious things of heaven and the dew and the depth lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun. We saw those in South Africa. With the precious produce of the months, with the best things, the choice places of the ancient mountains with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth, the gold, the diamonds, the other minerals. And talks about, again, the crown being on him who was separate, verse 16. These were promises that God made to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when you travel around, you see how these promises have been fulfilled. There's no getting away from it. These things have happened. God has honored his promises. He's kept his promises. God has a plan. He has a purpose. Deuteronomy chapter 4, you might want to read the first 10 verses there, where Moses reminded the Israelites as they were about to enter the promised land, he said, you are to be lights and examples. You are to be lights and examples to the world. You look at the example that the Americans set and the British set and other Europeans set around the world. We've not set the best examples. You know, the music that we export, the movies that we export, the lifestyles that we popularize today and export to the world. I remember talking with a gentleman down in the Caribbean one time, and he was talking about, uh, he says, we don't like the Europeans coming over here. They come over here run around without any clothes on. <laughs> uh, chase our boys as well as girls. So we don't like those things. You know, Americans and Europeans have made various places of the world their playgrounds. And they bring wrong examples to the world. And God says, you are to be lights and examples to the world. God wanted the world to look at these examples and then want to follow them because of the blessings that come. See, God has a plan. He's got a purpose that he's working out on this earth. Principle number two, or perspective number two. The nations of Israel have forgotten God. The nations of Israel have forgotten God. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 18. And you see this in South Africa. You see this throughout Europe. You see this in Australia. I remember talking with Mr. Tyler a number of years ago. He said the biggest social function, the biggest activity in Australia is a gay parade in Sydney. Now they're having gay parades other places. 
one of the fee sites we actually looked at here in the United States. We decided not to use it because they have a gay weekend that uh, they have in the same town. See, today we think in, in America, well, we, we need to be tolerant. We don't want to be judgmental about anything. But God says these things are an abomination. They're horrible things. And there are going to be consequences when people get caught up in these things. Jeremiah chapter 18. And this again reiterates the fact that God has a plan and a purpose. Notice in verse 11. It says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. He's talking about Israel and Judah. Is this the God of the Bible? I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Down in verse 15, because my people have forgotten me. You know, these Afrikaans pioneers made a covenant with God. If you deliver us, we'll dedicate a day to you. But they never kept the Sabbath. They kept Sunday. They didn't keep the feast or the holy days. They kept Christmas and Easter. And they're losing their country as a result. I need to talk with our visitors from France, but I was talking with another gentleman in Europe the other day. and said, you know, the Germans believe in God. He says, the French don't believe in anything. And many Europeans today don't believe in anything. They have rituals that they follow if they go to church. But they don't believe in the God of the Bible. You know, who is writing some of the books today attacking God, attacking the Bible, making fun of religion? Some of these academics in Britain, some of the academics in America, supposedly Christian countries. God says, because, you have for, because my people have forgotten me and they burned incense to worthless idols, you walk through many of the Catholic churches in Europe and you see idol after idol after idol, people crying and you know, and praying in front of these statues of wood or statues of stone. Because they burned incense to worthless idols, they've caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths. And it talks about them going into captivity as a result of these things. The nations of Israel have forgotten their God. You might want to read Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, Israel has committed a great sin. A great sin by departing from me. Do we view these things today as a great sin? Well, it's everybody does these things. It's just one of the things that happens today. And God says this is a great sin and there's going to be consequences for this. Perspective number three, part of our job as a church is to warn the people of this world about what is coming down the road and to warn the nations of Israel we have been blessed incredibly. But God says because we've turned our back on him, we're going to lose those blessings. Part of our job is to explain that. And you know, you can't deliver a warning to the world sitting with a little group in your living room. It's just not going to happen. We're going to have to do this together, working together as a team, committed to a, a mission. You can read the scriptures for yourself. Isaiah 58, verse 1 says, Cry aloud, spare not, 
Show my people what they're doing wrong. Explain to them why there will be consequences. Ezekiel 3 and 33. Ezekiel was given a mission to be a watchman and to warn the world about what is coming. And Ezekiel was told, if you don't deliver the warning, but you see it coming, the blood of these people are going to be on your shoulders. Again, you can't do that sitting in your living room with a little group talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and change an awful lot of things. Luke 21, verse 24, talks about the time of the Gentiles. At the end of the age, we're going to see a time of the Gentiles, where the Gentile nations will again dominate this world. That is what we are seeing today beginning to happen. In the nation of China, over a billion people is rearming. They are not going to be denied. You know, all the funds of the world are, are piling up in China. They're going to use that money. They're using it today to buy American real estate. People that have the money begin to control the, you know, pull the, control the purse strings. They determine what's going to happen. Europe wants to play a role on the world stage. They are rearming. They've signed a, a, a treaty. They have a president of Europe. They are not going to be denied. The Bible indicates for three and a half years they're going to have sway over things. You know, this professor at Harvard University, Samuel Huntington, in his book on the clash of civilizations, makes the statement that uh, the sun is setting on the Western world. The American century is over. Mr. Kohl, former prime minister of Germany, he said the 21st century is going to belong to the Germans. The Bible says there's a time of the Gentiles coming. It's going to be a very different world. We're seeing these things beginning to happen. It was an item in, the, uh, in your bulletin here about the German influence in Africa is increasing. It's talking about the Germans wanting to set up educational uh, uh, activities in Germany, basically to orient the leaders of Africa to look to Germany. That's what this uh, Ordensburg was all about that we went to visit. They were training young Germans between 25 and 30 years of age to be able to function as the leaders in a German Reich. And they were being trained in an environment where they're up on top of a hill looking down on everybody else with these big statues of knights and so on around. It was a takeoff on Ambassador College, really. Because <laughs> we brought young people to a very beautiful environment to train them to become leaders in the church. Satan was doing the same thing. And it appears the Germans are doing the same thing now, training a group of leaders in Africa to look to Germany. And my brother lived and worked in Germany for summer back in the 60s, stayed with a German family went to several meetings of these German veterans. And they would look at him and kind of smile and make comments like, the next time we're going to do it right. The next time we're going to do it right. And the Bible indicates that Syria is going to be the rod of God's anger to correct a backsliding nation. There's some people today, we don't know who the Assyrians are. Mr. Armstrong knew. 
the Arabs knew in the 1400s who Assyria was. They were Germans. They're very efficient. They do very well what they do. But they're also very, and I'm German, <laughs> they're very focused. And they can be very narrow-minded. You know, we did a trip to Europe, I think our first trip to Europe, and uh, we flew in a German charter plane. And Scott was only about, my son was only about 18 months old. We got on the plane, the plane was half empty. And so we had this baby, we thought, well, we'll just sit back there where nobody is sitting. The stewardess was right back there in a moment. You will move up here. You will sit up here. I said, the plane's half, you will sit up here. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> As we were coming into a landing in Frankfurt, Scott said, Daddy, I've got to go potty. So I picked him up, I started walking to the back of the stewardess, said, sit down. The pilot said, sit down. I said, he's got to go to the bathroom. Sit down. I'm hearing in my ear, Daddy, i got to go. i got to go. And I start the move. She said, sit down till we land. So he threw up all over my coat. And then the girl was very apologetic. I said, if you just let him go to the bathroom. You see, she'd been programmed. The pilot said, sit down. You will sit down. <clears throat> they ran a good airline. <laughs> a little bit rough on people. <laughs> You know, I can't believe the Germans are not doing anything right now. From the item that was in the news report, they're doing things. They're moving in a direction. One or two other points. We don't need to go through all of these things. A warning we have to deliver, point number five, I think it is, uh, or four. We have a job to do to preach the gospel. Now, you're familiar with the scriptures there. Christ is going to return. This is part of the gospel. Jesus Christ is going to return, intervene in world affairs. Isaiah chapter 9 talks about he's going to set up a government on this earth. It's going to bring peace to this earth. Now, I just think over the last couple of months, I was walking the battlefield up there at Manassas, walked another battlefield at Gettysburg. You know, when Lee invaded Virginia, he had about 70,000 troops. He lost 40% of them. 40% died. That's just Confederate troops at Gettysburg. The slaughter that has taken place around the world, Jesus Christ is going to bring an end to all of this. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, it says, The people are going to learn war no more. It's all going to stop. And we have been called to share that message with the world. The message of Jesus Christ is not about a little baby in a, in, a, in, a, in a manger. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth. He's going to turn the world right side up. And you and I have been called to participate and help do that, help prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ. Another perspective, Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Let's look at that quickly. You know, what are we doing in church today? Why are we here? What is our job? You know, it is to preach the gospel of a coming kingdom of God, to preach the gospel of a coming time of peace, about a time when cities are going to be rebuilt. There was an article in the London Times the other day, the American Association of Advancement of Science is having meetings, I believe it's in New York or someplace. It was a big article, big full-page article about cities need to be redesigned for people. 
so that people can function more effectively. That's what they're talking about. That's what the Bible talks about. We're going to have a chance to do these things if we prepare. But notice in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. This is the mission of John the Baptist. This is something that we have to do too today. Mr. Armstrong understood this. In verse 16, it says, He, Jesus Christ, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. You know, it's exciting to see people coming into contact with our message and realize, wow, that's actually in the Bible. We're not going to bundle off to heaven. We're actually going to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. I remember talking with a man that uh, lived up the street from us whenever I was growing up. And uh, we had a chance to talk with him about uh, the, the future and the kingdom of God. He said, you know, he said, what, what's, what does your church teach this different? He found out I was a minister. I said, uh, well, we keep the Sabbath. We keep the holy days. He looked at his wife, who was an organist in the Presbyterian church. He said, Ruthie, I've always wondered why we never kept the Sabbath. <laughs> he knew about it, but he didn't understand it. Talked to people in Africa. They talked, they've come in contact with us. said, you know, our ministers don't tell us what's in the Bible. They said, we see things in the Bible they're not talking about. See, this is the message we have to deliver. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, that is, John the Baptist, will go before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, rebuilding the families, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and also he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Part of our job today is to prepare people for the return of Jesus Christ, to reign with Jesus Christ. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, Mr. Dukach, who took over the Worldwide Church of God, was traveling around the world to do what? Prepare the bride. How did he do that? You could shake hands with him. You could get your picture taken with him. That was not preparing the bride for Jesus Christ. You know, what are we doing today? We've established a living leadership class. Why? To prepare people to lead with Jesus Christ to learn how to lead as shepherds and not sheriffs, as teachers and not tyrants, as servants and not sergeant majors. We've got to learn how to lead in a right way, in a godly way. Why did we establish the Living University? To prepare teachers, to be able to say, this is the way, walk you in it. See, there are reasons behind what we're doing today. We're not traveling around the world to take pictures and shake hands. <laughs> We've got bigger things to do. The final principle is to, we've got to learn to work together. If we are going to fulfill our mission of preaching the gospel and warning the world, we've got to learn to work together in harmony. A final lesson that I'd like to conclude with. As I was asked a question, I believe it was in South Africa. They said, uh, working with church administration, what would you say is the biggest problem in the church today? And I said, let me think about that. Let me think about that. And I've been thinking about it for about two weeks. <clears throat> I think it's probably not the biggest problem, but it is a problem that keeps resurfacing from time to time. And I would call it a lack of vision. <clears throat> 
a lack of vision that turns out to be what we could say would be individual myopia, short-sightedness, personal pettiness. Think about it. Somebody said, I've got my feelings hurt. I'm upset because I can't get along with so-and-so. I sit on this side of the congregation and they sit over there because I won't have anything to do with them. But we're supposed to be Christians. Others will say, well, I wasn't treated right. Another person might say, I don't like the way the work is being done. Another person might say, well, you know, I need to straighten out the church because God has revealed something to me <laughs> that he's, he's not revealed yet to the ministry. Others might say, well, you know, I've got to leave and go someplace else where I feel more comfortable and where I can be somebody. See, this is a lack of vision. It's losing sight of the big picture that God has a plan and a purpose, that he is working out on this earth. He's called us to be part of a team, to work together, not to get our feelings upset and to get ruffled about. Brethren, if we can keep our eyes on the big picture, go back and read Psalm 121 again, where David said, I lift up my eyes. Look up at the stars. Look up at the sky. I had a chance to do a Bible study on the way up to Kruger National Park. We stayed in a little guest house. I woke up the next morning, looked out the window. It was a little lake out there and a nice porch on the veranda. I went out and sat, did about an hour's worth of Bible study, watched the sun come up, listened to the birds, thought about bigger things. If we can lift up our eyes, break away from our routine, use the Sabbath to focus again. Why are we here? What is our mission? What is our purpose? What does God want us to do? How can we prepare? How can we prepare? to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. What would you like to change about this world? Where would you start? I gave a sermon a number of years ago, a long time ago, about building cities and restoring the environment. This older lady come kind of wobbling up to me after service and she says, that's why I'm in this church. She says, I want to change the world. <laughs> she was excited. <laughs> she was motivated about her purpose about her reason for being, about the message that's in the book. She saw the big picture. She had a sense of vision. Brethren, if we can recapture that sense of vision, that God is working on a plan, a purpose, he's called us for a reason, he wants to use us in the coming kingdom of God, if we can endure to the end and prepare for what's coming. It's good to be back home.